High FM, 101.9 megahertz of life. One of the very big items in the news this week has been the death at 95 of Mangasutu Gachabutulezi, um, born in 1928. Um, yeah, that's quite impressive. And... He essentially is, is the, probably the leader most associated, not just as the leader of the Encarta Freedom Party, which was previously a cultural organization, but the preeminent leader of the Zulu nation in, literally in decades, and was a very, should I say, forthright, brave, sometimes stubborn leader who took a line that was entirely different. It was not going to be that apartheid was going to be destroyed by violence, and uh, which was very much the uh, ANC's preferred choice of, 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 of process. <coughs> but it was going to... It was he, he was promoting a non-racial South Africa, um, free markets. I'm not sure if one would call him an absolute classical liberal, but he certainly... He, he, he was very firm in views that I think a lot of South Africans would, would fundamentally have supported. Um, he made the most, probably the most impact in styming the nationalist government in creating a full range of homeland entities by refusing to al- allow KwaZulu, what's now KwaZulu-Natal to become independent. And that really threw a spanner in the works of what the, the National Party had in mind for, for the country and played a significant role in the fact that ultimately the state of South Africa, the position it, it came into by 1994, was not entirely driven by the socialist agenda of an ANC that was committed to an armed struggle and Ultimate and then subsequently to a people's war, which arguably was much more effective in that the ANC targeted um, targeted the ordinary people as a, as, a, as a sort of fear mechanism, as well as targeting their own their, their, their opposition. And the IFP was the greatest of opposition of for the ANC because there was real popularity; membership was considerably higher than any other party in the. In the country, and it was really in that context that the, a campaign of vilification occurred, um, calling Butelezi a sellout, um, essentially in Pimpi, every any sort of expletive virtually that would would would, uh, would diminish his his status, and that sort of propaganda has uh, certainly has some effect. And while one doesn't know entirely, I certainly don't know entirely the extent to which the violence that occurred in the subsequent years, um, you know, the, some of the blame could be placed on Encarta. But it was definitely ANC-instigated um, violence, which is intended to be instigated to, to overcome all the opposition, including Encarta, Zapu, PAC, across the board, uh, black consciousness. And, of course, retaliation resulted. But it... it we lived in a very confusing, very complicated time, and I can't, I can't say for sure the, the, the sheer depth of it. A lot of issues that were, were dealt with violently often had to do with, were local issues, were, 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 were factional issues. But be that as it may, the, the one thing 
and I think this this was a testament to Butelezi's his intellect, his view on things, was he regarded the, the boycotts, uh, certainly particularly um, the liberation before education boycott, as absolutely detrimental, that South Africa would never recover from that. And to a large extent, it never has. So, you know, obviously your, your influence wanes by the time you're 95. It doesn't matter who you are, even if you're Henry Kissinger, your, your, your influence wanes to some extent and has. But as a force... For the politics of this country and for Zulu people, which uh, Mangasutu Gachapatulezi was huge. So I've done the unusual thing of calling in my ex-colleague from the studio and um, the most opinionated Zulu that I know, Sikhle <laughs> Ngobezi or Big Daddy Liberty. Welcome back to home. Indeed. It's good to be back. Feels like a lifetime ago that I was here, <laughs> and um, yeah, good to be back. And unfortunately, a very <clears throat> somber topic, mm. a, um, especially for one who is sort of, uh, you know, who straddles multiple identities. Mm. You know, mm. as a someone who's converting to Judaism, to someone who's Zulu, proudly so, yeah, and of course, someone who's South African. Umango um, Tele was a figure that one simply cannot deny his importance in South African society. Um, I, Zikla, I, what I wanted to really get a sense from you is because I was probably more of the fundamental generation that saw a lot of what he did and what a force that he was. You are younger than me. <laughs> Let's not get into that one. Um, and I'm, one of the things I really want to get a sense of is how, what young Zulus, how young Zulus will have seen and I assume it's not a, a monolithic mm. view of him. Um, so that's really what I'm keen to get to keen, keen mm. to get on because he lived as long as he did. Mm. So he was always there. But you know, would you have seen him in the same way as the people would have when they were fighting? You know, dealing with the ANC in the late 80s, early 90s. Mm. I think that's a good question, and it's one which often people are. Struggling to grapple with now because most of what we're hearing about the late Prince Mangusutu Butelezi, who of course was the traditional leader of the Butelezi clan mm-hmm. under the Zulu sort of, um, I'll call it, um, uh, uh, nation. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> One of the things you'll never hear about him is his ability to translate complicated political concepts mm-hmm. that were not common to South Africans generally right. into very easy everyday, every man, everyday on the street man language. Mm-hmm. Let me be precise and specific. On the issue for example of our transition into democracy, it's all, it's often now glossed over as, oh, uh, you know, let's just focus on the violence of that particular period of time. And people often forget that here's a guy who, who literally said actually violence and in particular revolutionary theory which is what dominated the sort of black activism of the time is wholly inappropriate in building a what will be a society after Mm. that transition where people then respect the rule of law and live in a functional safe um, and indeed prosperous democracy what you need and what you want is what he argued is a society that has an eye on freedom first Mm -hmm. first and foremost I mean the very foundation of the IFP initially as a cultural movement 
and then sort of transitioning into a political movement, political party, was its central tenet was freedom. I mean, mm. the, the, the word freedom is in the name of the party, um, which is a very different departure from what you heard back in those days where revolution was the, mm. the sort of main thrust of what um, you wanted. So where am I going with this? It's to make this point, is that now in his death, unfortunately, um, you, you have people who are piping up and not telling the full story of the guy who really believed in a non-racial, prosperous, democratic, free, and property-earning South Africa. Mm-hmm. And he did this, of course, primarily through his love for the Zulu nation. Mm. I won't deny that part. Mm. He was quite Zulu nationalist in, mm. in, in a very large extent. But that Zulu nationalism was never exclusive. It never mm. was a, well, actually, we're doing this just for mm. Zulus, but mm. rather something he used to say and uh, a, a line of thought he used to actually impart on the late king, uh, the, mm. uh, the late Zulu king, King Zulitini, was that Zulu as a home, is a home for every Everybody who calls that part of the world, mm. um, you know, their home. So we're forgetting, unfortunately, you know, the, the, this very multifaceted person who, you know, you know, born in the twenties. Mm, my goodness, mm. you know, he's seen literally a world war and the transition from a colonial South Africa into a, a apartheid South Africa into this democratic mm. one. A wealth of wisdom, which we've now lost effectively mm. um, to that old foe of us, mm. ours, which is death. Mm. No, um, the inevitable. Mm. Um, what, I mean, you raise a point that's, that's most interesting is there were, that connection and that leadership of the Zulu nation was, was fundamental and federalism was very much, very core to the way he saw so that. But that was federalism. That wasn't, it wasn't secession, secessionism. Yeah. And, that, and he, as you say, he really did expand that, that, uh, that belief to, to South Africa in general. Let me quickly talk to that because obviously today, mm. ironically, there is a big, or let me rather call it a growing movement mm. within young Zulus to reinvigorate that conversation about independence. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but actually that, that, I'm, and I must be honest, I'm part of that conversation mm-hmm. in a broader sense, mm-hmm. but I'm also shaping it more in the direction of actually federalism. Mm. You know, what you really want is not a separate Zulu kingdom necessarily, but actually one which has greater autonomy, um, anything like the Americans would have, for mm-hmm. example, mm-hmm. where it's one country but multiple states. Um, but I, I don't want to get bogged down in the weeds on this one, except to say this on it. One of the things he really understood was the imperative of freedom mm. and the imperative of building a family-orientated society deeply rooted in its culture, whatever that may be. Mm. It wasn't just exclusively, as I argued earlier on, about Zulu mm. identity, but actually a firm belief that you want a South Africa that recognizes organic uh, diversity, not the sort of imposed mm. Mm. diversity that we have today where someone tells us what diversity is. Mm. Um, <laughs> Whether you like you know, it or not. Absolutely. What he really argued for was actually what you really want is a South Africa where everybody has a shot to be exactly who they are and to grow up in a society where there's functional government, which is what, if if you talk to our dads, our grandparents as young Zulus would say characterized Guazulu, then, you know, the sort of so-called homeland, which, by the way, a concept he abhorred mm. because he made the point even mm. to the apartheid government that what you call the sort of homeland Bantustan is absolute nonsense. Mm. It's, it's not even free. It's just a proxy for the apartheid government. And he made this distinct argument that you actually build a democracy or you go full on give them genuine independence, mm. which he wasn't really in favor for, but he was testing the mm. very mm. Uh, arguments that the apartheid government was making, that you actually re- you genuinely do this or you don't do it at all. You build a unitary mm. state where everybody has rights. Um, and I want to come back very quickly, just mm. this quick point. The key difference 
which I will hold to to this day as a lesson learned between Umangusutu Telezi and his activism, his anti-apartheid activism back then, was the difference between people who believed in revolutionary theory versus people who believed in reform. Mm. The very necessary need for reform and that reform preserves a society after, if you will, the quote-unquote revolution, but actually preserves a society and builds on what is already there. So it Mm. builds on it and it does so for everybody. And that's what often placed him and still does to this day at odds mm. with the sort of prevailing narrative by the sort of, I'll call it the mainstream media, just to be uh, a little controversial, uh, but really also the political elites. Mm, mm. Um, but if you talk to ordinary people on the ground, if you, if I were to take Sarah gone right now and all the listeners who are listening now and we go to Ulundi, his home where, um, where his home is, and you talk to ordinary individuals on the street, they will extol his virtues, not because someone's holding a gun to their head to say organized things, but because they can see the level of development, the level of, uh, if you will, um, I don't know, you, I don't know what word to use. There's, there's almost an unspoken uh, manner that, that prevailed in KwaZulu-Natal from a leadership from Umangusutu Telezi that after a very long time even transcended the party political mm. sort of realm. Mm. He became an elder, if you will, mm-hmm. of the, of the uh, Zulu people in the sort of traditional prime minister role where he is the sort of right hand of mm. the king. Um, and of course, as the former leader of the IFP, this is a man who is an immense figure mm. who should never sort of be dismissed, you mm. know, by sort of the opinion pieces that we're seeing today that mm. are completely ahistorical. Um, well, perhaps I'll come to that first. The, the, and then it's been interesting because a lot of the uh, comments and obituaries have been, They've tended to come from one side or the other, but a few of them have been absolutely unequivocal. They, 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 they've even, I suppose, the commentators from the left have 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 recognised um, what he, a lot of what he what he offered and what he was. Interestingly, I think I, I saw two inter- overseas obituaries that were venomous. I mean, oh. they absolutely venomous. And of course, I can only assume that they. And, and I know the one was very much on the ground here at the time when things changed to democracy, whether it wasn't buying it hugely into that revolutionary ANC rhetoric. That's the one point. But the other point is that you, I think your point about the fact that it, however much it, you know, the Zulu nation was under his uh, sort of tutel, uh, under his tutelage, etc. I read yesterday the obituary from the, I think it was the Zionist Federation. Uh, either Zanisfed or the Board of Deputies, um, praising him hugely for his contribution to and his relationship with the Jewish community in mm-hmm. South Africa, and his very warm feelings towards Israel, which he obviously which he obviously visited more than once, mm. and that that almost um, defines the difference between how um, the ANC views the the. Uh, Jewish, the Jewish population and particularly its relationship with Israel, which is toxic. Mm. And that view, which is that more liberal, it seems like the two go hand in hand. That more liberal view is, is, is less, sees things on a less black and white basis and is less, you know, condemnatory, um, from a, from a, a you, it's from an ideological point of view as opposed mm. to a human point of view. Mm. I mean, here's a guy, it must be said, Prince Mangusutu Telezi was a big friend of the Jewish community, a big friend of Israel, uh, both from his just personal religious convictions as a deeply devout Christian, um, and also beyond that, from his sort of 
and I, I also use liberal with a small L uh, mm. um, descriptor, where he, he really had a live and let live um, view to the world, where he said, "Look, we're all different, mm. you know." And, and my role as someone who holds political office, someone who holds political power, isn't to impose my particular vision for society on everybody, but rather to actually coalesce everybody in society and say, "How do we build this thing that we call South Africa?" Mm. Yes, each of us can recognize our own individual traits as individuals. Ironically, he was a big proponent of the individuals, a part of him that people don't really know. But beyond that, he also said at a family level, because families are what make up communities, how do we preserve the culture, the values, and the intrinsic sense of identity that various uh, cultural communities across this country and religious communities across this country hold? And that's, you know, if you're a young KZN resident, that's the ethos, that's the values that we were raised in. Mm. KZN has always been very liberal in that sense. Mm. Um and it's, it never surprises me that you often see some of the more prominent, for example, black liberals in this country coming out of KwaZulu-Natal. There's mm. a good reason for that. You know, we have this sort of very long tradition mm. that it stems back. But I want to answer this question quite directly um, and say this. You know, we, we have a situation now, a very rare opportunity, if you will, where... It, there's two things at play here, and let me take a moment because mm. I'm, I'm trapped by my own sentence construction. Let me just form my <laughs> thoughts here. There's two things that we really need to sort of remember. Number one, his massive legacy is one of um, remembering two things. One, you cannot bully a society down a, a particular tr- uh, track record. What you really want is a society based f- primarily on institutions. And this is one of the biggest legacy that Omangosuto leaves behind. And it's often, if you talk to ordinary people in KZN, they'll say it. We mm. are still today beneficiaries of institutions that he built mm. in KZN. I mean, there are actual institutions named after him to this particular effect. I mean, there is a Mangosuto uh, University of Technology, mm. a whole university in my home township of Umlazi, for mm-hmm. example, where I was raised. That's same township, by the way, was one of the first townships that enjoyed wonderful access by way of roads, uh, property rights from way, way back all, all the way back to the 50s, mm-hmm. where people could actually own mm-hmm. property, something which, which apartheid, as you'll know, was not necessarily at the forefront of, of giving black people ownership. But these are the things that he fought for. Mm. So institutions and being institution orientated and really valuing the development of the individual by way of edu- a solid education system, despite what the apartheid government tried to do with Bantu education, a reasonably good health infrastructure um, back then. I mean, one of the hospitals mm. in the area named after one of his uncles, Prince Nshieni, is a you know mm. massive regional mm. hospital in my area. I can go down the line. There's a massive emphasis on uh, the development of institutions. And secondly, um, tolerance. Mm. The second thing that, that really defined that era despite, of course, the the attempts by his political opponents to destabilize and create the impression of the IFP being violent, for instance, through what I really encourage people to read, Anthea Jeffrey's book, uh, The People's War, which really details how really it was that revolutionary theory and really the ANC, um, upon unbanning, recognizing that they're not, no longer the biggest uh, black formation in the country, sought to basically destabilize its political opponents, ma- na- ma- namely, pardon me, its black political po- opponents by 
by casting them as violence and unleashing a campaign of violence that we saw in that era. That is now what we're seeing today, which is being used ironically to tarnish his image. Mm. Um, <clears throat> and this is not to say that Umangusutu was a absolute saint. Mm. No, of course not. We're human beings. You know, we have a good and a bad side. But here's a character who really, if we were to talk to the people who really matter, will probably extol his virtues than any sort of sins. Okay. Hashtag you don't have to be Jewish. Secretly, <clears throat> that's interesting because what what you're essentially saying, and it's, it's something I've always held, is that if you if you recognise the autonomy of the individual and their their decision to be part of a be part of the larger group, invariably you will have a more sustainable larger group because there's a recognition that individuals um, offer more. As individuals to other individuals, and ultimately you, your, your, your group, your group has solidity and, and can provide benefits in return. Perhaps just I could just end is what generally is the feeling? I mean, no, no, what I mean, what I want to say rather is there, there does seem to have been a, a significant resurgence of the IFP, um, from a, from an electoral point of view. Um, and that's quite interesting because clearly, you know, once when da- Jacob Zuna was sent in to, Take Kozun and Natal. He did a very good job of it, but you know, with the, with the essentially the demise of the ANC and everything that goes with it, there does seem to be a revival that has occurred. Although he's been a presence and now longer isn't isn't is, is no longer there, but he has been a presence. But he's not been the person who's driven it. Is it sustainable? And and does his legacy would would his legacy contribute to any sustainability? I'll be brief in saying this. I think you're going to see a resurgence of two things that are going to change the political landscape, and not just in KZN, but in the country in, broad, in broader sense. There was a version of Umang Sutub who really, after stepping down as the president of the IFP, repatriated himself back to being a sort of cultural leader. That's why you started seeing him really amplify his role and play a bigger role as being the traditional prime minister to the Zulu king and fortuitously or unfortuitously, whatever the word is there, uh, the passing of the late king, seeing that, ushering that transition mm, period, mm. really saw him play that role at the forefront, changing, if you will, the tone of who we are as Zulu people. A reminder, if you will, of who we are, that we actually exist outside of the formal institutions of government. Um, and that those institutions, cultural as they may be, are super important mm, mm. to also determining where we head as a province, as a region, politically. Mm. And that's what the IFP, I think, are being beneficiaries of mm. at the moment. Yes, on the one side, it's the fed-up nature of people in that part of the world to a poor governance of the ANC. That's implicit. Mm. But also reshaping who we are in that part of the world and why. Taking ourselves back to that sort of cultural identity is important because that cultural identity came with the notion of institutions. Mm. That it's not the big man politics. It's not about Jacob Zuma or Cyril Ramaphosa or even Mangusutu Telezi. It's about a system that built institutions that serve ordinary KZN residents. Mm. And he, that is a massive legacy that he has left, ironically. For the current leadership of the party Because if I were to ask most people Who's the leader of the IFP right now Really, you know, nine times out of ten People will not be able to say who that is However, if you were to um, make that same You know, frame that same question Is in the context of Are we seeing a resurgence of the IFP mm. in KZN People 
almost instinctively say yes, mm. not knowing anything about the IFP mm. right now. Um, and I think that's what we're seeing mm. on the ground. And this will be my last gasp in saying this. I think ordinary people on the ground, even as they commemorate the life lived by Umang Sutu, recognize now, more importantly, the lessons he left, mm. which is you want to build a society which is free, that is prosperous, that is based on institutions and not big man politics mm. and not revolutionary theory, but actually an agenda for governance and, and, and reform, mm. gradual reform of a society, a property owning society, and one where the individual and really families, you know, I talk a lot about the individual, mm. but really we're a family mm. society. But one where the family is is given center stage mm. prominence in society. Well, if, if I understand what you're saying, essentially you're saying that his legacy has allowed it not to matter mm-hmm. who the leader of the IFP is. Uh, it's the IFP as an institution that. that I mean, here's that a matters. good example: um, the very transition from the previous Zulu king. And the current Zulu king, that's from King Zulitini to King Mrs. Zulu, the Zulu monarch, was driven by Umangusutu, not as an individual and a personality, but by him reminding an entire nation of 11 million Zulus mm. that we have institutions as Zulus that govern these sort of things. And that even though there is contestation, as there was back then, it all reverted back to what is the law? law. Say about these sort of issues. What do our institutions that we've built from a office of the prime minister that is in the Zulu context to an entire, um, um, I want to call it federal, federal le- le- level mm. levels, pardon me, of Zulu, uh, kings, because mm. we don't call them chiefs anymore, you know. In other words, kings of various clans mm. under the Zulu nation. Mm. What, do, what do the institutions that govern them say about these moments? That little lesson, it seems like it's such an innocuous thing, but that reminder to ordinary people, the 11 million Zulus, that actually we're governed by law, we're governed by institutions, and if we do this culturally, why are we not doing it in our political sphere, where we emphasize the need for institutions that serve society, not that serve the elites or serve the royal house, or whatever the case may be, but that actually serves society. And it's that ironically legacy that he left in these sort of latter years of his life, which is now seeing really the IFP become a massive beneficiary of it because all they need to do at this stage is make that argument. Mm. We as the IFP are promising not lofty promises of free this or free that or we'll do this, but actually we're promising a revert to building institutions that serve you and everything else is up to you. Excellent. Certainly, thank you very much. Um, I, I think you were the right person for me to to get on because a you have things to say and b that you have uh, food for thought, and I think that's crucial because, as you say, I mean, well known, but still, you know, best known to the Zulus. So there's a lot that us non-Zulus don't know, or the or the or the, or the, the subtleties and, mm. the, and the extensive. So thank you very very much for coming on. Thank you for having me.